Welcome to the Commission Podcast. Today is session three from our main talks at our Revive Bible Festival this past June. We're working through the book of Jonah and the theme of going to the great city. If you missed the other talks in this series, head back to the previous episodes to check those out. In this episode, we'll hear again from Richard Koken on Jonah chapter three and the mercy of God. How urgent it is for us to share the saving message of the gospel and how great God's mercy is that he gave his son for us. We hope you enjoy. This morning's reading is taken from Jonah chapter three, starting at verse one. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. Go to the great city of Nineveh and proclaim to it the message I give you. Jonah obeyed the word of the Lord and went to Nineveh. Now Nineveh was a very large city. It took three days to go through it. Jonah began by going a day's journey into the city, proclaiming, Forty more days and Nineveh will be overthrown. The Ninevites believed God. A fast was proclaimed and all of them, from the greatest to the least, put on sackcloth. When Jonah's warning reached the king of Nineveh, he rose from his throne, took off his royal robes, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat down in the dust. This is the proclamation he issued in Nineveh. By the decree of the king and his nobles, do not let people or animals, herds or flocks, taste anything. Do not let them eat or drink, but let people and animals be covered with sackcloth. Let everyone call urgently on God. Let them give up their evil ways and their violence. Who knows? God may yet relent and with compassion turn from his fierce anger so that we will not perish. When God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil ways, He relented and did not bring on them the destruction he had threatened. Morning, everyone. Isn't it great to be here? Imagine this exciting moment. You've been praying for months it would happen. You've heard the message of Jonah 1 and 2, and you've plucked up courage to go again. You've invited two non-Christian friends to a guest service at church. And amazingly, they've agreed to come. There you are, sitting nervously with them in church. They seem to be coping with the culture shock of sitting amongst people nothing like them, hearing religious prayers and songs they don't know or understand. And even when the guitar and keyboard are clearly in different keys. But when the preacher gets up to speak... What are you quietly, desperately praying in your heart will happen? What message do you want them to hear? What response are we hoping they'll make? What are we asking God to do in that situation? Well, Jonah 3 has some explosive things to say about this, because Jonah 3 teaches us to pray that they hear God's gospel, including his warning of judgment, verses 1 to 4 that they respond with deep repentance and faith, verses 5 to 9, and that God will relent from his wrath towards them and show mercy, verse 10. 
We're listening to Jonah because Jesus' Apostle Paul says the Old Testament Scriptures are able to make us wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. And Jonah 3 tells us how we and our family and friends and colleagues and community can be saved. So it really matters. I think we need to begin by going back to what the Bible actually says God's gospel is. The word gospel means good news. It was used in the ancient world of momentous announcements. God's momentous announcement is not good advice to follow or good ideas to discuss, but good news to believe and to celebrate. Good news, says Romans 1, regarding his son. If we're not talking about Jesus, it's not the gospel. Even if we're proclaiming marvellous true things about God the Father or God the Holy Spirit or our church or whatever, no one can be saved until we talk about Jesus. For example, lots of people think John 3.16 is the gospel. Wonderful verse. For God so loved the world, he gave his only son. Whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. But honestly, you could preach for a thousand years on God so loved the world and a million years on whoever believes will not perish but have eternal life, and no one can be saved. Because God so loved the world is the reason for the gospel. Whoever believes is the response to the gospel. It's the middle bit that he gave his only son, which is the gospel, by which we can be saved. Let me say a bit more. The Bible says God's gospel announces that Jesus is Christ our Lord, Romans 1. Now you know that's not his first name, middle name, and surname. It means... Jesus, that is the historical crucified Galilean, is the Christ, the long-promised saviour king of the Old Testament. Our Lord is the risen divine ruler of all. And the Bible says he came as our king, Mark 1. He died for our sins, 1 Corinthians 15. He rose to rule, 1 Corinthians 15, and he will return to judge, Romans 2. That is the gospel. Jesus is Christ our Lord who came as our king, died for our sins, rose to rule, and will return to judge. Brothers and sisters, that is the gospel. But many popular courses and presentations and preachers never mention Christ returning to judge. Despite the Bible explicitly saying in Romans 2.16 that judgment is part of God's gospel. God will judge people's secrets through Jesus Christ as my gospel declares, says the apostle. The problem with never mentioning judgment is that it's not obvious to believers what we need to be saved from, nor why Jesus' death on a cross is so wonderful, nor why the future makes it so worth becoming a Christian. If we never talk about the future, we'll be tempted to exaggerate our blessings now and to lie about the costs of following Jesus. The Bible says, 1 Corinthians 15, if only for this life we have in hope in Christ, we are of all people most to be pitied. Now listen, I know knowing God makes everything about life better, but it's still hard being a Christian, isn't it? But if we speak of judgment and eternity, it couldn't be more obvious why it's worth being a Christian. Because the difference between hell and heaven is as obvious as the difference between night and day. And Jesus preached repeatedly returning to judge to launch an eternity of extravagant blessing in the new creation for his followers but an eternity of torment in hell for his enemies, Matthew 25. Now, listen, I'm not suggesting we all turn into annoying hellfire and damnation preachers, like one brave but, in my view, misguided evangelist, who for many years stood at Oxford Circus, bellowing repeatedly at shoppers over his loud hailer, turn or burn, turn or burn, 
And the truth is, everyone avoided him. And no one spoke with him because he seemed crazy and threatening, though I respect his courage. We do need to be gentle and kind. But isn't it striking that the greatest revival in Bible history began when Jonah proclaimed God's message of judgment? Let's see what happened. Chapter 3, verse 1. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. How wonderful to discover. The Lord is the God of second chances. Having disciplined and rescued Jonah, God didn't give up on him and get someone more reliable. He doesn't issue a torrent of instructions and threats. The Lord simply issues exactly the same command as before. Isn't that wonderful that where we have previously failed to obey his great commission, he'll give us another go because he's the God of second chances. It's not too late to go again. Mind you, the Lord doesn't negotiate with Jonah. Verse 2, go to the great city of Nineveh and proclaim to the message I give you. Jonah is told what message to proclaim, forestalling every temptation to modify God's word and make it more popular. We are not at liberty to twist the gospel or remove the politically incorrect pages of the Bible. This would not only be disobedient, but ineffective. If it's not God's gospel, it won't have God's power to save, will it? Indeed, if people come to church and just hear the words ideology, they may as well stay in bed and read the secular papers, which is what many Londoners are doing. I'm not suggesting we announce all the most difficult Bible doctrines at our guests the moment they arrive in church. Of course not. It's wise to reserve more difficult and controversial, controversial doctrines for careful and extended teaching and discussion, probably in a midweek context. But Paul does say, We've renounced secret and shameful ways. We don't use deception, nor do we distort the word of God. On the contrary, by setting forth the truth plainly, we commend ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God, 2 Corinthians 4. We mustn't deny, misrepresent, or twist God's word, but teach the truth honestly, clearly, carefully, with as much kindness and sensitivity and love as we can find. Now, Jonah had tried rebellion before, and he nearly drowned. So this time, verse 3, Jonah obeyed the word of the Lord and went to Nineveh. Now, Nineveh was a very important city. A visit required three days. Well, the journey from the port of Joppa to Nineveh was about 500 miles. It would have taken a few weeks by a camel or donkey. This famous, violent and immoral city and the emerging superpower of Assyria mattered to God, not just because of its political and commercial status, requiring three days of official hospitality going through the city. But because, chapter 4, verse 11, there were so many confused and lost people there. Well, what's the visiting prophet going to say? Verse 4, on the first day Jonah started into the city, he proclaimed, 40 more days and Nineveh will be destroyed. It's very unlikely this is all he said. Jesus later says Jonah's survival in a fish was assigned to Nineveh in the same way that his resurrection is assigned to us today. So presumably, Jonah explained his experience of the Lord's deliverance, perhaps evidenced by some very strange burns on, on his skin from the stomach acid of the fish, just as we will need to explain the resurrection of Christ with evidence from the Gospels. But the only thing God wants us to know about what he said, through which he saved Nineveh, is this blunt warning about judgment. 
40 more days and Nineveh will be overturned. Imagine arriving in Islamabad today, walking into the central square in front of the mosque and announcing, the Lord God of Israel has commanded me to warn you that in a month you're going to be destroyed. I mean, Jonah was certainly brave. Perhaps this was the message that Jonah wanted to preach. In London, of course, announcing the wrath of God to unbelievers sounds madness. It's more likely to deter people than draw them, isn't it? I mean, we know the reality. But if we don't find contemporary ways to gently explain the danger we're in, how will anyone ever believe they need a saviour? We've got to try and find a way of doing this. The great preacher Martin Lloyd-Jones, known as the doctor, used mightily by God in the Welsh Revival, declared this, I'm not afraid of being charged as I frequently am with trying to frighten you, for I am definitely trying to do so. If the wondrous love of God in Christ Jesus and the hope of glory is not sufficient to attract you, then such is the value I attach to the worth of your soul, I'll do my utmost to alarm you with a sight of the terrors of hell. Without being unwisely hasty or using spiteful medieval language or a self-righteous manner, we need to find appropriate ways to warn people of the wrath to come. I, I don't know how you do it. I find if I accuse people of being sinful, you know, you're a terrible sinner, you need saving, people are deeply offended. But if instead I admit my own sinfulness and say, I don't know about you, you're probably a better man than I am, but I have realized I'm a very selfish and rebellious person. I'm in serious trouble with God. I've ignored him and I've behaved very badly and I am in serious trouble. And people say, yeah, well, me too. In the end, you see, it's not about courage, it's about conviction. I said it before, but imagine if I go on for ages and ages and it gets dark and um, you travel home and uh, you go back to the house or flats, think of it where you live. And as you're walking past one of the other flats, you see a sinister glow in the front window. And peering inside, you can see that a cigarette butt has fallen on the, out of the ashtray and the furniture and the curtains are on fire. What would you be doing at that point? Oh, I'm so late. That, that preacher went on for on and on and on. I need to get home. I, you know, I really need to get home. Somebody else, I, I do lots of things, you know. Somebody else would do this, team play. You know, I need to leave it to somebody else. I mean, wouldn't you be hammering on the door? Hey, you need to get out. Leave us alone. No, 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 you need to get out. Leave us alone. You're being rude. We're all the kids are in bed. You need to get out. This is dangerous. Your house is on fire. Let me tell you, spiritually speaking, your whole block of flats, your whole street is on fire. I don't know what you do about that exactly. I don't know whether you organize a curry night or a barbecue for your tower block. I don't know whether you invite your neighbors over for carols, hear the true meaning of Christmas, tell your story. I don't know whether you plant a church in a school in an area where there's no faithful church. One thing I know you don't do, and that is nothing. You've got to do something. The street's on fire. Wonderfully, when Jonah announced God's judgment, something amazing happened. Verse 5, the Ninevites believed God. They recognized the warning of Jonah was the word of God, and the whole city turned from its wickedness. Now, shock and awe preaching doesn't always work. In Acts 7, Stephen was stoned to death. 
There are dangers attached. I assume that Jonah took his time to tell his story and win his audience, to recount something of the history of the Lord's dealings with Israel, perhaps recounting with a bit too much enthusiasm how the Lord inflicted his destruction upon Sodom and Gomorrah. So our text is surely just the executive summary of his teaching. But God tells us that Jonah proclaimed judgment because unlike Jonah, most of us find it difficult to do. From the beginning, the devil has been spinning that lie he told Eve. He won't die. <laughs> he won't die. Does anybody still believe that? I mean, really? Is that, what, is that what your church believes, is it? <laughs> I, thought, I thought that went out with the Victorians. Really? <laughs> but she did die. And people have been dying with monotonous regularity ever since. Every judgment that God has announced and carried out should be a warning to us. He's not playing games with us. Christ, the Son of God, who knows the plans of the Almighty and suffered on a cross to save us from the hell we deserve, repeatedly insisting, insisted this is a reality, he said, this is how it will be at the end of the age. I quote, The angels will come and separate the wicked from the righteous and throw them into the fiery furnace where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth on a mass scale. Matthew 13. Let's be clear, it's not that Christ is a torturer. It's just that arriving unforgiven in the presence of a holy God who is a consuming fire, who is holy in his holiness, is like landing naked on the surface of the sun. And of course, Jesus talked like this because he loves us more than anybody else does. He doesn't want anyone to go there. It's an expression of his love, like the road sign which says, tiredness can kill, take a break, or a mother yelling at her overactive toddler, don't go near the road or you'll die! It's not that she hates her child, she loves her child. It's no accident that preachers like Jonathan Edwards and others you can read about were greatly used by God in the 1730s evangelical revival in America, for he proclaimed not only the beauty of Christ, but the torments of hell. I'm not going to read you a lot of it because it's too harrowing. It goes on for several pages. Let me read you just a short paragraph of what he said in his famous sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God through which hundreds of people were saved. Here's a paragraph. Consider what it is to suffer extreme torment forever and ever, and to suffer it day and night from one year to another, from one age to another, and so adding age to age and thousand to thousand in pain, in wailing and lamenting, groaning and shrieking and gnashing your teeth, with your souls full of dreadful grief and amazement, your bodies full of racking torture, without any possibility of getting ease, without any possibility of moving God to pity by your cries, without any possibility of hiding yourself from him, without any possibility of diverting your thoughts from your pain, consider how dreadful despair will be in such torment, to know assuredly that you never, never shall be delivered from them, to have no hope. It is appropriate to cry.
And people did weep, and they repented in their hundreds that night. Now, of course, we can't do that that way today. It's usually wise to delay talking about the wrath to come until unbelievers trust us enough to listen. And we must think very carefully about the language that we use. But if we never explain the wrath to come, Christ on the cross will never make much sense and never seem very marvelous. To think that Jesus took that from us is the most wonderful thing in all the world, isn't it? Well, commentators worry about drawing exaggerated conclusions about the depth of the Ninevite understanding, which, of course, we can't know. But we do know that their shallow repentant faith in God's message of judgment produced a radical response, which Jesus later commends to his listeners, then and now, as true repentance. Just simply, repentance is turning. It's turning to God in repentance and have faith in our Lord Jesus, Acts 20. So as the minister is finishing his excellent gospel message, including a very sensitive explanation of the trouble that we're in, what are we praying he'll tell our friends to do? Or let's assume he mucks it up. What are we going to try and tell our friends to do later on in the coffee shop or in the pub? Especially when one of them claims, I've always been a Christian. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And another says, I tried Christianity at school. It didn't work for me. And you're pretty sure that neither of them was ever saved. So many people think they've tried Christianity, often because somebody told them too quickly that they were saved. And they seem to have fallen away, which is not possible for those that are truly gods. But they've become cynical. And we need to know the answer to that famous question of the Philippian prison officer. What must I do to be saved? And people often use romantic phrases like, I found Jesus, or God saved me, or I came to faith. But what does that actually mean? How does someone become a Christian? We need to know this if we're going to reach London. Paul says, I've declared to both Jews and Greeks they must turn to God in repentance and have faith in our Lord Jesus. And throughout the Bible, turning in this passage is the simple word shuv. It's, it's classic for all the prophets. Turning. It's a simple way of explaining repentant faith, which says, because repentance and faith are twin aspects of turning around. God wants us to turn from sin, which is repentance, to follow Christ, which is faith. Let me, let me try and illustrate that visually. This is not dad dancing like last night. This is, this is an illustration, okay? So, um, let's say I, I'm walking this way, which is my own selfish way, and it leads to hell. And I hear the gospel, and the Spirit speaks to me through the gospel and convinces them that I must turn to Jesus. So this is the sinful way I was walking, and then I, I turn around, and I start following Jesus uh, to heaven. What have I done? Well, as far as sin is concerned, I've repented from sin. I've turned around. So I've repented from sin, but I've also put my faith in Jesus. Do you see how turning is both things at the same time? That's why in the Bible you often get calls to repent. Sometimes you get calls to believe or have faith. And sometimes you get both. It's all describing turning. Yeah? From sin, repentance, to Christ in faith. That's faith. Now, of course, when you hear the word of God, is it enough? If I'm going this way and I, and I hear the gospel, have I turned? No, I'm not a Christian. If I hear the gospel and I think, oh, that was an amazing message. It really moved me. Have I become a Christian? No. 
What if I'm, I'm walking this way? I've heard the gospel. It really moved me. And I want to change. I believe it's true. I know it's true. I want to be a Christian. Have I, cha- have I become a Christian? No, not until I turn in repentance from sin and faith in Christ. We don't help people if we don't explain that they must turn from their sin. Now, of course, you can't promise to be perfect. Our sinful natures remain. But you do need to commit to try to the depth of our wills. See, the word repentance means to change your mind. But it's not just intellectual. It's to the depth of our wills. We intend to follow Jesus, to turn from our sin, to try and follow him. Now, of course, we fail. As we're going in this direction, parts of us go back in the old way, you know, and behave in the old way. And we're like we weren't a Christian. We behave like a non-Christian. It's not that you stop being a Christian, then you become a Christian again. But the word of God keeps calling us back to go in the direction we're going, calling parts of our lives back into the direction we've now come. Repentance and faith for salvation is a one-off thing when we're born again. And then throughout the rest of life, we're bringing our life into conformity with the direction that we're going, which is Christ-likeness. This repentance is changing my mind to the depth of our will, which is the intentions of our mind, and our desires, the affections of our hearts, expressed in behavioral change. That's why Paul tells King Agrippa, I preach they should repent and turn to God and prove their repentance by their deeds, Acts 26. We don't really desire and intend to change. We're not repenting it. Maybe we're not saved. Of course, we're not saved by our repentant faith. We're saved by Christ through our repentant faith, which the Holy Spirit creates in us through the gospel, like an exhausted swimmer being rescued onto a lifeguard's surfboard. It's being saved by the lifeguard through lying on the surfboard. Jonah 3 is so helpful in describing this repentance. Now, despite how shallow the Ninevite understanding must have been, indeed, in just a few years, in 722 BC, they will revert to type and invade the north kingdom of Israel. Jesus says that their unsustained repentance, remember the Holy Spirit has not yet been given to all who believe. He says what they did is what repentance looks like today. That's what Jesus says. He says, the men of Nineveh will stand up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And now one greater than Jonah, that's him, is here, Matthew 11. So let's look at how they did this. In verse 10, we read the people of Nineveh turned. The previous verses, 5 to 9, explain the four stages of how they did that, very briefly. Verse 5, they believed God's word. So in believing Jonah's message as words from God, The Ninevites were like the Thessalonians, whom Paul later said, when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of man, but as it actually is the word of God, which is at work in you who believe. 1 Thessalonians 2. So repentant faith begins with God's, all those who are chosen by him for faith, recognizing the voice of their shepherd and responding to his voice. They believe God's word. Next, verse 5, they humbled themselves. They declared a fast, and all of them, from the greatest of them to the least of them, put on sackcloth. So if you'd wandered into downtown Nineveh, the normally bustling markets and crowded food stalls were deserted because everyone was fasting. We don't really know why they did this. It seems unlikely Jonah encouraged them to do it. Perhaps they'd read what to do in Joel, 
the prophet Joel, who has similar wording. But Nineveh was like a city under siege. The wealthy discarded their Ralph Lauren wardrobes and looked like beggars, shuffling around anxiously in sackcloth of mourning and penitence. The dress code indicated genuine regret for their idolatry and immorality and a deep humility. Not that superficial religious version of humility, which is just turning over a new leaf and trying harder to seem humble, to earn God's mercy. They genuinely regretted what they'd done. They admitted their guilt. They accepted they deserved punishment. And they turned from their sin. When we read repeatedly, he gives grace to the humble, Proverbs 3, James 4, 1 Peter 5. We're not being told, oh, self-humbling's the key, guys. Get yourself humble. God likes that, and that gets you into heaven. All right? Humility is not a kind of great way to get into heaven. Humility is to recognize the horrifying truth about ourselves. We have failed God. We are morally filthy. We are guilty under his law. We deserve punishment. Humility is admitting that were it not for Jesus, I should be in hell right now. That is where I should be. They humbled themselves. Thirdly, they turned from their sin, verse 8. The Assyrian king commanded them, let them give up their evil ways and their violence. Again, just like the ship captain, this pagan leader is behaving better than Jonah in encouraging repentance. So if you wandered around the temples and the back street brothels, they're all boarded up. There's no sign of the violence and the cruelty described by the historians. They turned from their wickedness. Fourthly, they prayed for mercy. Verse 8. The king's edict said, let everyone call urgently on God. Who knows? See, again, that note of humility, just like with the captain. Who knows? God may yet relent and with compassion turn from his fierce anger so that we will not perish. They begged for mercy. They knew their prayers guaranteed nothing. There's no presumption that treats God like a, a slot machine, as if he's obliged to forgive us, like a genie in the lamp who must grant our wishes. As Christians, we trust God to forgive all who repent, not because he has to, but because wonderfully he's promised to do so. 1 John 1 says, if we confess, by the way, this is for us too. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just, and he will forgive us our sins and will purify us from all unrighteousness. 1 John 1. No one is saved without repentant faith like this. Yeah? They believe God's word. They humble themselves before God. They turned from their sin and they begged for mercy. So whether or not we grew up in a Christian family, no one is saved without this kind of repentant faith. There may well have to be a crisis of decision. There may be many tears. As there might be if you were persuading someone to give up drugs. I mean, you know... <laughs> If your sister's doing hardcore drugs or something, you don't just, excuse me, could I mention maybe, I just wonder, wonder if it's just the best, you know, is it the best lifestyle choice? I mean, I, I don't know, but isn't there some point at which you go into a room and you jam the door closed and you shout and you cry and you plead with this girl to give up? 
You need help. I'm not letting you out of here until we, we agree on this. No, you do something. There are a wonderful Christian couple here in this tent who were saved through another wonderful Christian couple who are in this tent. When they finished doing a little course in, uh, in their house, I think it was Christianity Explored or something, and at the end, the Christian um, lady went for it. And they, you know, the other couple were saying, yeah, 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 no, we agree with this, we believe it was true. And she said, no, I don't think you do. I really don't think you get it. You have not turned... And afterwards I heard, she said, I just blew it. I just, I just couldn't stop myself. And afterwards, apparently she turned in tears to her husband and she said, I think I've driven them away. They'll never come back now. The other couple will tell you, as they went home in the, in the car, there was silence. And he said to her, she's right, you know. And they became Christians. All will now hinge then upon God's reaction to the Ninevites. Verse 10. When God saw what they did, you see that? Saw what they did and how they turned from their evil ways. He relented and did not bring on them the destruction he had threatened. It's not just what they said or sang or prayed. You know, la, 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 amen, you know. Demonstrated in their actions. Their hearts were shown by what they did. Now, this could raise a problem for thoughtful Bible students. Because it sounds like God changed his mind when the Ninevites prayed. Now, at first thought, you think, oh, that's brilliant. That's an encouragement to pray then, isn't it? But the Bible assures us, Numbers 23, God is not a man that he should lie, nor a son of man that he should change his mind. God never needs to change his mind because his knowledge and his wisdom are always perfect. Theologians describe him as immutable. It means he's unchanging, which is wonderful because he's utterly reliable in his character and in his will and in his promises. He doesn't have to change his mind. He never gets anything wrong. Indeed, if God can change, then he was either imperfect before that change or he's imperfect after it. In either case, he wouldn't be God. Okay, scratch your head. Well, what's the point of any praying then? What's the point of praying if God's not going to change his mind? Right, let's just think, there are two wonderful implications here. Firstly, God's immutability, his unchanging character, is of great comfort to us in trusting his promises, especially the gospel. I mean, people change constantly, don't they? Because our human nature is inherently unstable. We have fickle emotions and weak characters, and we're all just a little bit unreliable. And many of us have been deeply hurt in the past by the infidelity of others or have ourselves been guilty of that infidelity. But since God never changes, he's utterly reliable and trustworthy in all his words and promises, and that's why he's repeatedly compared to a solid rock, an impregnable fortress in whom we can take refuge for safety. Psalm 18, the Lord is my rock, my fortress and my deliverer. My God is my rock in whom I take refuge. And I was just chatting to someone earlier this week, and I wonder whether the unfaithfulness of others in God's purposes is what may drive us back to him, the one who will never, ever, ever let us down. 
So secondly, when God is described as relenting here, he's not changing his mind. What he's actually doing is he's keeping his promise to relent exactly when he said he would. For God had already promised explicitly in Jeremiah 18 in these words, if at any time I announce that a nation or kingdom is to be uprooted, torn down or destroyed, and if that nation that I warned repents of its evil, then I will relent and not inflict on it the disaster I had planned. Yeah? Explicit. This is exactly what he did when the Ninevites called out to him in prayer. So being consistent with his promise, the Lord relented. It looked like he changed his mind. But actually what he did was exactly what he always planned to do, and to do it when they turned to him. Likewise, in 1 John 1, God has explicitly promised, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. So when anyone turns to him in repentant faith, God will keep his utterly reliable promise to relent and show mercy. And so Nineveh was not destroyed. Now, of course, the reason that God can do that justly and not punish sin was not clear until Christ came to die on the cross draining to the last drop the acid of God's cup of judgment until not a drop is left for us. And so if you are an unbeliever here, and it may be that you're here and perhaps your family or friends assume you are a believer, but you know deep down that you have never actually repented. You know... You've even sung songs and you've even kind of gone along with it, but you know deep down you've never actually turned from your sin to follow Jesus. Today is a day for you to pray to God, to plead for his mercy, and finally turn. Do it. There'll never be a better time than today. Do it today. And if you are a believer here, as we go again, return to London, let's pray now and resolve to speak to an unbeliever that we know. Ask for strength to warn them, like Jonah, of the judgment to come. I was thinking in spiritual terms, I guess we live in the Grenfell Tower of 2017, don't we? You know that awful tragedy when 72 people died and 70 were injured? Do you remember the public inquiry afterwards condemned the fire services for failing to tell people to get out of the building? Let's make sure that condemnation could not be placed upon us. For God may well be waiting until you pray before he relents from his wrath towards that unbeliever because he wants to show you again that he loves you, that he listens to your prayers, and he had always planned to answer your prayer when you pray. My recently dearly departed father had a wise but simple message stuck to the top of his computer screen. It's wonderful, this message, to remind him every day. It's just three words. It says this. Pray, you fool. <laughs> Not wonderful. So we're going to do that now. We're going to have... A moment of quiet for prayer.
And if you are an unbeliever, can I plead with you now? Turn to God now. Ask for his mercy. And if you are an unbeliever, will you pray for some specific people that you could speak to to turn from their sin and to find the mercy of God? Let's have a couple of minutes of quiet now. Let's bow our heads. And pray, you fool. Pray. Almighty God, we thank you for telling us the truth, for warning us of the judgment to come. Lord Jesus, thank you that you, in great love, warned us of this judgment many times. You told us how horrific it will be to face you unforgiven. Please forgive us where we have ignored this truth. Please forgive us where we failed to even mention it to those we love cry out to you, Lord, that you would grant to those people that we've been praying for true repentance, that they might turn from their sin and put their faith in Jesus and be saved. Please answer our prayer, we pray. And for any of us here today who are, if we're honest, we have not yet repented. We would want to pray now, Lord, in these terms, and perhaps for all of us, to confirm that we are yours, we pray this. Almighty God, I am deeply sorry for my sin and I turn from it now to you. Thank you for sending Jesus to die in my place and to rise again to open the way into heaven. Please forgive me and help me to follow you from now on. Amen. Thanks for listening to this episode. We hope you were encouraged and spurred on by it. Stay tuned as we continue to share these talks in the coming weeks. See you next time.